Today's passage is in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim. Church, if you would open up your Bibles to uh, Psalm 29. I just got to say, it's just a unique joy to be back with you this morning after six weeks on sabbatical and then having faithful brothers fill the pulpit. I just got to say, absence does make the heart grow fonder. It is good to be with you here this morning. I was just worshiping, and you may have seen, like, I'm just, tears are streaming down. I'm like, this is going to be a mess. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully, we're going to be able to make it through. But while you're turning, I just want to remind those of you who may not have been here for the last seven weeks, what we've been doing is we've been walking our way through the Psalms. And we're going to continue doing that for the rest of July. But as we move into August, we're going to to take the month to focus in on holiness. And you may ask, why holiness? Well, one of the gifts of being able to be on sabbatical is that I was able to read deeply on the content and the subject and the necessity of this idea of holiness and just put a burden on my heart that our people, that you would understand more clearly the importance of holiness for the people of God and what does it mean that God is holy. So we're going to take the month of August, and that's going to be our focus. But until then, we're going to be walking through the Psalms. And this morning, we come to Psalm 29, which is a Psalm of David. It says in the inscription, now, unlike some of the Psalms we've had before, we don't know exactly what the occasion is or the reason that he wrote this Psalm. But I hope it's going to become clear to you as we walk through Psalm 29 that I think the occasion for the Psalm is nothing more than David observing a passing thunderstorm. And in the storm, he sees uniquely the glory of God that he wants to make clear to the people of God. Amen? With that said, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, we love you. First, because you are glorious and you are worthy of our honor and our praise. We see so little of your glory. And so our prayer this morning is, Lord, that you would reveal through the preaching of your word, but more importantly, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that we may behold our God and that we may give him what he is due. Not mere lip service praise, but a heart that is in awe of him. So we ask this morning, Lord, that you would do this, Father, for the glory of Christ 
and the good of his worshiping people. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What do you think of when I ask you, what is the goat? All right. Some of you, I may be thinking, okay, he's talking about the horns and the hooves kind of goat. I am not talking about that kind of goat. I am talking about the, what is it again? Guys, I would be honest with you. I I totally blow the intro thinking you guys, I'm so proud of y'all that you guys all knew what the GOAT was. So GROAT is just the acronym for greatest of all time for those of you who are not paying attention. And if you've never heard that language before, all you have to do is be able to turn on a TV uh, sports program. And I guarantee you at some point during the day, they are going to argue about who is the greatest of all time in basketball or tennis, or soccer, or swimming, or maybe just the overall greatest athlete. And they, these shows are trying to try to figure out what the, the GOAT is, and we watch because we care about who they say the GOAT is. Like, we weigh in, and I, I can feel it. Like, I don't care about a lot of different sports, but if you start talking about basketball, and I grew up in the 90s, and you start talking about the greatest of all time in basketball, and you're talking about anybody else but MJ, I'm going to get, like, a little hot. And I'm going to start to, I can, we're, gonna, we're not, probably not going to fight, but we're about to have an argument. <laughs> but the truth is, it's not just athletes. We're all obsessed with glory. Every year there are award shows, ad nauseum. We've got the Oscars and the Emmys, the Grammys and the Tonys, and on and on and on. And even if you don't care a thing about those shows, nobody has to explain to you why there are these award shows to give glory to certain people, actors, places, various things. And I want to submit to you that the reason for that is because that innately you recognize that greatness should be recognized and appreciated. That you know deep within you that when something is great, when something is glorious, you should recognize it and appreciate it as such. Which brings us to Psalm 29 this morning because the burden of the psalmist is that we all would recognize and appreciate the greatness and the glory of the God who rules over the storm. Because this isn't just an academic debate. If you don't recognize MJ as the greatest of all time basketball players, you're going to look stupid. (laughs) But aside from that, there's really no other damage that's going to be done to your person. But you see, God created us to worship and enjoy him. So if you aren't impressed with God, if you miss his greatness, if you're blind to the unique glory of God, if worship and being in here and singing songs just seems like this unnecessary add-on to my life, this burden, this thing I've got to do to be religious, then my guess is the Christian life holds very little peace and joy for you and that ultimately you have no vision for the glory of God. 
And so our goal this morning is very simple, to walk through Psalm 29 and see how the psalmist lays out three reasons that we have to worship and enjoy him. Three reasons that we have to worship and enjoy God. The first, very simply, is because he is owed it. The first is because he is owed it. On June 12th of this last year, the Denver Nuggets beat the Miami Heat in Game 5 of the NBA Finals to win the NBA championship. Didn't watch it, to be honest, didn't care, but it did found out it did happen. By that act, they proved that they were the best, the greatest team in the country. And so when the NBA commissioner handed that trophy, that NBA championship trophy to that team, he didn't do it because he wanted to make them feel better about themselves. Well, they kind of expect it. I bet I better do it. I want them to feel good about themselves. He gave them that trophy to that team because they had earned it. They were owed the title and the trophy based on their performance. The glory and the title of being the NBA champs, you could say, belonged to them. And so in a similar way, in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist calls us to give God the glory that actually belongs to him. You see, I wrestled whether or not say God deserves our glory, is worthy of our glory, but I was like, no, those terms are too weak. We owe God our glory, our praise, our worship based on the reality of who he is. We see that in verses 1 and 2, as the psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, what's interesting about these opening lines, if you haven't been with us in Psalms, is that this is the first time in our Psalms that the psalmist is not addressing God directly or not directly, well, it was the first time that he's actually directing, uh, directing his command to the congregation. So, so many of other psalms have been talking to God. They're vertical psalms, but this is one in which he's actually addressing a different group of people. Who does it say he's addressing? Heavenly beings, right? So what does he mean by heavenly beings? He's, he's simply either meaning one of two things. He's either talking about the false gods of the nations, saying, listen, you false gods, you owe him your mercy, your, your, your worship, and your praise. Or he is talking about, I think he's talking about the heavenly assembly, the host of spiritual beings that we see pictures of throughout Scripture that are gathered before the throne room of God and are constantly worshiping because of his unsurpassed greatness and glory. But you shouldn't think because he's talking to the heavenly beings that he's like, all right, you people, you're, you get a pass on this. No, this is what David is doing. David's saying, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, meaning that even those in heaven who have a unique glory greater than you, people I'm writing this for, because remember he's writing this to use for worship in the temple. He's saying even they owe God their worship, so certainly so, so should you. Right? So he says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, worship. So again, he uses this word three times. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Let me ask you a quick question. How, when is the last time you have ascribed something? 
My guess is that that's not a word that you use regularly in day-to-day conversation, yet it's an important word for these first two verses because he uses it three times. Anytime you see repetition, anytime you see him saying something three times in Scripture, you need to pay attention to why he's using it. So he says ascribe three times. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. What does it mean? Well, very simply, it means to give someone the credit they're due. To give someone the credit they're due or to give what is theirs. So we actually see an example of this used in uh, 1 Samuel 18. You guys may remember the story. Saul gets jealous because he's walking through town and David's walking through town and the people start shouting about how David has killed his 10,000, or Saul his thousands, but David his 10,000s, right? This doesn't set well, and so he's complaining, and he says, they have ascribed to David 10,000 enemies killed, and to me they have ascribed 1,000. In other words, the people were giving to David more credit and therefore more glory for killing more enemies than Saul, and so this idea is very closely connected with worship, Which is why next he says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The word worship means to bow in reverence. So he's not just saying, here's what God wants from you, his people. For you to say wonderful, nice things about him. For you to come in here because you feel guilty or because you should come in here because that's what you're supposed to do if you're religious and say things that God wants to hear because that will make him feel better about himself. He is saying, people of God, you need to recognize above any other your God is glorious. And you need to give him what he is due. It is not just that he is worthy of it. It is not just that he deserves it. It is that you owe it to him by virtue of being a creature that he created and as he being the one and true glorious God. And specifically, he calls them to worship and ascribe to God glory based on who he is. Now, who is he? Well, next he says he is the God of glory and strength. As he says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And now again, glory and strength are these words that we hear all the time and we expect to kind of hear in church and people are going to say them and we have no idea the sense of what they really mean. So when he says glory and strength, I want to just unpack this a little bit for you. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod or kabod. I don't care how you say it. The whole idea is that it means weighty, splendor, honor. It's speaking of this majestic weight to the God of heaven. A heaviness, you could say, to his greatness that he wants us to know and feel. I think of how when you hold something well-made in your hand, you can be like, oh, this must be expensive and it's heavy. You're like... Okay, that's kind of what we're talking about here, like this heaviness of his excellence. This is connected to the idea of strength or power, meaning that he is not just strong, but that all strength on earth, all power comes from him. It all belongs to him. There is no weakness in him. 
And then it finishes with this description of him and the splendor, worship him in the splendor of his holiness. Now, I'm not going to dive too deep down this hole because, like, again, we're going to spend a whole month on this. But when he talks about his holiness and the splendor of his holiness, he means that God is in a class by himself. He is transcendent above and beyond his creation in every way. His ways are high above our ways. He is beautifully and gloriously other. Every other glory that you know is a creature glory. The greatest thing that you know, the most praiseworthy, beautiful thing you know is a creature glory. He has creator glory. And it is a unique glory that know that he shares with no one else. In other words, everything in these opening verses is calculated to help the reader understand their need to worship him, not because of they feel like it or because it's a good, nice thing to do, but because he is owed it by virtue of who he is. Like a championship team who destroys their opponent or an Oscar-worthy performance deserve praise and glory, our God deserves all praise and all glory and all worship. So therefore, you owe it to him to worship him. Now, let's talk for a moment about how we do that. What does that look like for us? To ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, like our call to worship said this morning. What's David got in mind here? Well, it could be a lot of different things. For one, it could be, he's talking about the lives that you live, which would be appropriate, right? In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul calls the, the Romans to worship the Lord with a spiritual worship by living their lives as living sacrifices. So in submission to God, that's the kind of worship. Or he could be talking about what we see in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, how he saves us that we may proclaim his excellencies to the world, to one another, to the lost. But I don't think any of those are the primary focus. I think in context, he's primarily speaking to God's gathered people for worship. Did you hear me? He's talking in this particular verses about what you do in here because it matters. He wants them to see that their worship gathering isn't merely meant to be a ritual or an unnecessarily obligation or something they incessantly evaluate on how it's fulfilling their needs, their wants, their desires, but as an opportunity to see and savor the glory of God and then ascribe to him what he is owed. It's a reminder that before you ever enter in here, church, you need to remember that this is not primarily about you. It is primarily about you having an opportunity obediently to gather with other of God's people who recognize his glory and be able to give to glory what he, give to God the glory that he is due. Amen? Which means I just want to ask you a diagnostic question this morning. And something I just want to ask you to begin to pray. Is that your heart when you go to worship? When you walk in here on Sunday, and certainly you're going to be like, well, we should worship everywhere. Absolutely you should. 
But if you're not doing it here, my guess is you're probably not doing it anywhere else either. And what I mean is not just showing up. My question is, is your heart, when you step into this gathering, whether it's in a building or on a beach somewhere, I don't care, but when you gather with God's people, is it your heart that he gets the glory that he is due? And if it's not, so think about that every Sunday morning when you get up. And if it's not, let me ask you to do something. Begin to pray, Lord, show me your glory. I'm bored with the idea of God. I know I'm supposed to think he's amazing, but I'm bored. Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And then secondly, Lord, help me worship you as I ought. I think if you will start to pray those two prayers every day you wake up to gather with God's people, my guess is it's going to transform your understanding of how you treat this time. And I think God will meet you in it more powerfully than he has before. Okay? That's point one. Hang with me, guys. Point two. What follows next is interesting. It's actually intended to help that. So if you're kind of like, I know he's glorious, but how do I, how do I kind of get a sense of his glory? It's interesting and amazing in God's providence, he has actually helped us within the psalm know his glory. So that brings us to our second point, why we should worship him because he commands the storm, because he commands the storm. How do we see as glorious and weighty and worthy of praise a God that we cannot see? It's a good question, right? I've never seen God, yet I'm called to worship him. I'm called to see him as glorious, recognize him as weighty and majestic. Well, as the poem continues, what David does is he picks something that you can see that has a unique kind of glory, a storm, to help us see and hear something of his glory. What he's wanting to do is elevate our imaginations so that we begin to grasp something of the glory of our God and the unique power of a powerful storm blowing in from the sea. And that he poetically interprets as personifying the power of God. How does he do that? Well, let's start with looking at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. Again, when we come to a section like this, we've got to remember we're talking about poetry. The point is to engage your imagination in metaphors like this. The sound of God's voice is compared to thunder, like the thunder rumble of a thunderstorm. Not a, a distant thing, but the thunderclap that, that shakes the windows, that, that rattles the window panes, that roars. And this is precisely what Moses compared to hearing his voice on in Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. He speaks to God, and then it says, and God answered him in thunder. Take a moment to think of the last storm that you encountered. For us, I remember several weeks ago, do you guys remember those storms that passed through like in the middle of the night? And I don't know about your house, but in our house, it was a lightning thunder, bam! And I remember because it woke at least a few of our kids up, and I think it was Jack who was crying, could, couldn't go back to sleep because of the, the shaking of the house because of the thunder. People of God, the thunder is intended to help give you a sense 
of the might and the power of the voice of God. And so he's connecting these images so closely to bring out the point that God's voice is powerful, which he says next, voice, uh, chapter, uh, verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. He explicitly describes here the voice of the Lord as powerful, which, remember, is the voice that spoke creation into being. So we want to take a step back and remember that in our theology of God and his command, he didn't make the world with his hands. He spoke it into being. And so the God who thunders is the God whose voice brought creation into being. His voice is power. His voice is majesty. We do not see God. But hear this. In creation, in the power of creation, in the glory of creation, we see the power of his voice that brought nothing, brought something from nothing. And the, now, and the voice that now commands even the mightiest thunderstorms. You see, David is a poet, but he's also an excellent theologian. He knows that if God spoke creation into being, then the glory of things that are happening on the created earth are ultimately speaking of his unique glory because he commands it. And so he continues in verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Think about, look, listen to the activity. Sometimes we think about the word and voice of God being a dead thing, a passive thing. Look at the active language he uses. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire, talking about lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. See, now what we have is the voice pictured like a storm moving over the countryside from north to snap to, to south. Starting off in the north where we have Lebanon and Syrian and then moving south to the desert of Kadesh Barnea. And as it passes, it is shaking everything that comes near, with, near to it. It is splitting trees in two with flashes of lightning. Ultimately, the idea coming out of this is that the sea symbols of strength. Did you guys ever heard of the cedars of Lebanon? They're what David made his house out of. They were part of what they were involved with the temple. Think of like our California redwoods. That's kind of like gives you some sense of like the glory and the grandeur and the strength of a cedar of Lebanon. And then he says, and his point in using all these images, though, is that we would see that as the most sturdy and solid structures of all creation, at the very voice of the Lord, they begin to splinter and break up and become undone, to begin to tremble because of the power of the voice of God. And the result, well, the result we see in verse 9 and the response of the people is, and in his temple... All cry glory. Now, I want to be careful because this is not like a, a glory in like a funny southern religious way, like glory. <laughs> this is like a deep, weighty, awe-filled, like we've just heard a thunderstorm roll by the church. We've just seen lightning strike. The thunder is rumbling outside, and they interpret it as the power of God rightly, and then the people are in awe, and they say, God, you are glorious. 
God, you are worthy of glory because you control the powerful creation with a word. So if the first couple of verses of this psalm were intended to elevate the importance of how you see our gathered time of worship, one, this, this section is intended to elevate the way you actually perceive the world around you. To give you a spiritual perceptiveness, a sanctified imagination, if you will, so that we learn to engage our world not as an unbeliever would, simply as this impersonal systems of laws and connections that, that bring about these ends. So a storm simply becomes, and I've got a background as a meteorologist, I'm not like denying science here, but I'm just saying, look deeper. Like in a sun thunderstorm, we know the meteorological things that are happening, the warm air rising, the winds blowing, we get all that. But that should actually increase your awe at the glory of God, not decrease it. Because he's asking you to say, look at the storm that your God designed. We can know a little more, we can see under the hood now a little bit, but it's still the glory and the power of God that makes it go. And so he's really calling you to elevate your imagination so that you don't look at the world the way an unbeliever does as its impersonal systems of cause and effect, but as something that is putting the glory of God daily accessible and on display for you so that you would worship. We know the verse, and the heavens declare the glory of God, and I want you to see that you have to Train yourself to be able to look like the psalmist looked at that thunderstorm so that you can begin to see the glory of God even in something as simple as a storm. Amen? Amen. And so our hearts struggle with worship often because we don't slow down and look at the world as God intends us to. But the poetry of this psalm is, is a call to slow down and see God for who he really is. And that brings us to our third and final reason, and it is our shortest point, because he is the peace of his people, because he is the peace of his people. The closing verses of this psalm settle in, and they are this sober reflection of a man who has watched the power of a violent thunderstorm pass, and as the soft rain washes over the landscape and the storm begins to rumble in the distance, he reflects on what he has seen. And he says in verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. It's interesting here that after he watched the storm, he uses the language the flood. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Now, it would probably trigger in your mind, and it definitely would have triggered in their mind, the image of the last time that the power of creation was unleashed on mankind in the great flood of, Roman, of Genesis 6 through 9. And the time when the creation destroyed man. And he is very clearly saying here that the power of God stands over and above and enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned, completely in control over all the forces and powers of his creation. The raging of nations, the raging of a thunderstorm, all under his authority. The epitome of all storms, he stands king over. 
And it's just a reminder of the absolute sovereignty over the space in which we dwell and he dwell and he rules it all with a word. The idea being that you shouldn't fear the storm. You should fear the one who has the power over the storm. And when I hear this and when I think about this as I was studying, I can't help but think of another situation in the New Testament when a group of people were terrified about a storm and God spoke to show his sovereignty over it. So in Mark chapter 4, and if you go ahead and put it up there, Larry, uh, Mark chapter 4, I think I'm going to actually skip to 39 through 41, but the idea of it is this, that the, the, the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee a storm comes up. They're scared for their lives. So they wake Jesus up, who's the only one who's asleep on the boat. And then in verse 39, it says this, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Church, this is your God. It is the Christ who came into his creation in order that he may show that he is sovereign over creation. But this is our God. He doesn't just speak sovereignly in the Old Testament and creation into being the one who came into the world as the one who showed by this that he has power over the world. There is a unique glory to God because uh, to Christ that even the wind and the seas obey them and of course they would because he is God. And therefore by connection he is owed your worship but also because he brings peace. The psalm finishes in a beautiful place. Verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Because you see, the flood is only a threat to those who are not under God's protection. As the story of Noah makes clear, David writes that not as a casual observer of God's greatness, but actually as one of his redeemed people. God is worthy of people's praise by virtue of who he is, but there is a unique peace and joy when the one who is enthroned as king forever is your king. When the one who is God over the world is your God, and he has instructed you to call him Father. You see, we don't praise God merely because he is great. As you, if you're in here today and you're, you owe God by virtue of being a creature, praise but you have a unique joy in your praise. Because we are his people through faith in Christ. And as his people, we are now the object of his delight, of his protection, of his mercy. In 1 Peter, Peter wants to remind the people that he is calling to a holy life. And he reminds them by saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priest, a holy nation, people chosen for his treasured possession. And then he finishes with, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
See, church, the reason you praise is not merely because he has owed it by virtue of his power and his strength, but because he is your redeemer through faith in Christ. This is the source of our peace and our joy and our worship of him. That this God not only rules, but he is our strength and our peace. And this peace we have is not because we are righteous or because we deserve it, but because we were born into it because he had died to obtain it for us. Colossians 1.20 says that Christ came making peace by the blood of his cross. So this psalm comes saying that God brings peace. Jesus in the New Testament shows us how God brings peace. How does God bring peace between an unrighteous creation strapped in sin, rebelling against him, and a holy righteous God? Well, God had to come down into his creation, into his world, and actually shed his blood in order to be able to bring that peace and that is the reason Christ came so he is worthy of your worship not only because he commands the sea and commands the winds he is also worthy of your worship because he is your peace people and because he has brought your salvation through faith in him in his death and resurrection And ultimately what he's saying is that there is no peace apart from him. He offers peace with God to any who would come and he wants his people who have come to enjoy the peace that he has purchased at the cost of his blood. You see, I think it's interesting that millions of people will tune in to watch shows and ceremonies bestowing glory on people they have never met and will never meet and don't care one whit about them but we have the incredible privilege of giving glory to the greatest and most excellent of all beings, the uniquely and supremely glorious one, and the one who came and died for us to give us his peace. And we see these two ideas connected, glory and peace, and the announcement, interestingly enough, of the angels of Jesus' arrival. And they said these words, and these are the words I want to leave with you this morning, reminding you, that your God is worthy of your glory. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. There is no God like you. Lord, you are worthy of all glory and all honor. Lord, we pray that you would give us the freedom of self-forgetfulness, Lord, even as we move into this time celebrating the Lord's Supper, that we would see your glory, that we would see and worship you for who you are and the splendor of your holiness. And Lord, that as we forget about ourselves, we would enjoy the joyful reality that we are redeemed by the blood of a cross and, a power of, and the power of a God who is far better than ever we could ask or imagine. And so, Lord, now we pray, help us to see your glory and ascribe to you and give you the glory that you are due. In your name we pray, amen.